0: When I preached this sermon last, we were still meeting together before all the shutdowns came. It was right before, it was May, March 1st, um, 2020, and since then, we've seen a lot happen, um, things have become... Clearer to me than were then, and also things I think have even in a se- somewhat, in some sense, changed radically since then. Though, though underneath things were the same, and we, we've seen a lot of turmoil. We've seen a lot of as as Ed was praying the the wickedness of the wicked, and and the battle that there is between righteousness and the wicked, and so as I considered. I was just looking for one sermon to preach um, for one more week. I I hoped that you know that I could maybe this week get everything finished. And as I looked at, as I considered these things and looked at Daniel chapter seven, um, this 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 message just jumped jumped out at me, and it was so encouraging to me as I reflected on it. And then I'm excited because you cannot possibly, I, I realize, and this is what caused me to question, if I preach Daniel 7, I have to preach the next two, because they, the three are just one piece. And so I thought, well, that'll give me a little more time. So that's the uh, approach here, and I pray that the next three weeks are going to be encouraging, uplifting, and, and, and uh, strengthening to you. As we live in, in these days that God has given us to live in. So in Daniel chapter 7, the, the type of writing, you may remember, changes all of a sudden. In Daniel chapters 1 to 6, which is where you get most of your, um, pretty much all of the stories in Daniel that most of us are familiar with from our growing up in Sunday school. Daniel and the lion's den, Chadrach Meshach, and Abednego, you know, the fiery furnace. Um, The writing on the wall, uh, all those famous stories, they're in the first half. Those are straightforward, easy stories to read. And then it changes from that comfortable historical narrative to this uncomfortable, to us, apocalyptic narrative. And when we hear the word apocalyptic, all sorts of connotations might come to our minds. Um, certainly in the world, you can watch an apocalyptic movie, and what does that mean? It just means doom and gloom and extinction and the end of the world, and there's only one person left alive on planet Earth, right? So that's, that's true, actually, as far as it goes. <laughs> but, but as Christians, our understanding of the end of the world is not the world's understanding of the end of the world, right? where the sun gets too hot and we all burn up, or where there's a nuclear war and the whole thing is incinerated and there's no human beings left and that's it and there's extinction. This is not the Christian's understanding of the end of the world. And so apocalyptic in the Bible is not intended to fill us with fear. If you're afraid of revelation, um, it's, it's because you've listened to the wrong teachers. Okay. So, there's, you know, there are parts of apocalyptic that are scary and fearful. And we know Daniel was pretty terrified at some of his visions. But God did not give him those visions to terrify him. What, what did the angel say? Stand up, Daniel, right? And then the angel strengthened Daniel. One of the reasons Daniel was so terrifying was that, A a, a mighty heavenly being just appeared to him, right? Some of the visions he saw were in themselves scary. But that's not the reason for apocalyptic. That's not the reason for it. The real point, to the contrary, is to encourage. In your handout, is to encourage all of God's faithful suffering people. One of the reasons we're scared uh, sometimes, we don't want to read, we want to keep Revelation at arm's length, or we're afraid of apocalyptic, is because we're already living such happy, comfortable lives. Well, a lot of people aren't living happy, comfortable lives, right? And so, whether we're living happy, comfortable lives, or we're not, this apocalyptic is meant to encourage us in suffering, In trials, to strengthen us, to persevere, and to fill us with hope. So if we don't come away from Revelation filled with hope, and not just the last two chapters, but ultimately throughout, we haven't read it right. So apocalyptic literature is, we know, full of one of the things that makes it um, formidable to us, is that it's filled with symbolic metaphorical language, and we're always like, well, I need an expert to tell me what, what that is. Why didn't God just say it what it is, right? Why, why do we have this symbol? Why don't you just tell me what it is, right? There's a reason for that. But we feel like we have to do the work of, of translating out of the language of apocalyptic into the everyday language of history, But the main point of apocalyptic is not to give us a historical narrative of the past or the present or the future. That's not the main point. It may at times do that, but that's not the main point. If it was, just to say it would not be apocalyptic, it would have been historical narrative. So one commentator cautions us against domesticating this profound literature. In other words, taking the lion, making it a a little cat, house cat. Even when we're interpreting, this is that, we have to be careful to let apocalyptic stay apocalyptic. So, we need to appreciate in your handout why God chose this to us Crazy language. Why did God, in his wisdom, choose this this type of writing that we see in Daniel, especially in Revelation, some in Zechariah, and some other places? So my prayer this morning is that God would help you and me to feel, to feel this undomesticated power of apocalyptic and of the truths that it is so perfectly suited to communicate to us. So we read in verses 1 to 2 of Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, the, the first step here is to see what Daniel sees. Remember, no one is talking to Daniel. No one is telling Daniel, now, Daniel, there was a sea. Can you picture it, Daniel? No, Daniel just, that's, he's, he's in his bed, visions of the night. And these are not your normal dreams, It's as though Daniel is actually there. I I don't know the mystery of how God worked these visions out. But you have to believe it would have been an overwhelming, a terrifying experience. Our dreams can be vivid enough. Not to mention visions that God gave to his prophets. So no one's talking to Daniel. He's not being told anything. All he's doing is seeing something. That's it. And now then, he writes down, he's like, this is what I saw. And he does this so that we, here, can see it with him. Behold, he says, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. You might need to close your eyes so that you don't keep seeing this tame place, right? So that you see what Daniel sees. The four winds of heaven are re- referring to the four compass points of the Earth, north, south, east, and west, right? Much like the four corners of the Earth. And so right away, we feel that there's this big cosmic scale to this. This isn't The Mediterranean Sea was called the Great Sea, but this is not the Mediterranean Sea. This in your handout is a cosmic great sea, greater and more terrible than the Pacific Ocean, or the Atlantic Ocean, or any of our four major terrestrial oceans. So can you, you picture this, you, you picture it in your mind's eye, this great mythic, but remember, when I say mythic sea, there's no such thing as this sea. Not, not in terrestrial terra firma, like, well, sea is not terra firma, but not on Earth, right? And yet, there is such a thing as this mythic sea. Otherwise, God wouldn't be showing it to Daniel, So there is this mythic sea. Where is it? Well, we're about to learn what this is about. But you see this mythic sea stirred up by all four of the winds of heaven blowing at once. Usually you have a northeasterly or a southeasterly. But now you have all four of the winds whipping it, this cosmic sea into a frenzy. You can picture this massive chaos. And one of the most famous... Babylonian creation stories is told in terms of a conflict between Marduk, who is the creator god, and there's different gods, but this is the god who creates and doesn't destroy. And then there's Tiamat, the god of the sea. Creator god, god of the sea. And here's how one commentator describes what happens. Marduk destroys Tiamat, the sea. And from her body creates the universe as we know it, including humans. Nonetheless, somehow, the sea continues to threaten to abolish the creation, so that Marduk must set up boundaries and guards to keep the world from reverting to its former formless state. In other words, the sea is a force ranged against God and creation in Mesopotamian mythology. The Canaanites had a very similar story. So, But their gods, they had different names for their gods. They had Baal and Yom, and Yom was the word for sea. And so in the Canaanite myth, Baal has to conquer the sea, Yom, in order to become the chief among the gods. So you got all the gods, and Baal wants to be chief, and so he must conquer the sea to become chief. Now, I want to ask you a question. How do you think the Babylonians and the Canaanites, both of them, came by this same mythology of the sea? How did they both get that? I believe it's because of the common tradition Of the true creation story, which was twisted through their unbelief, through their idolatry. So what do we read in stark contrast with this in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The original creation was preceded by only water. There was darkness everywhere. All was formless and void. That was no place for men to live, obviously, or for many of the creatures that God would create. So when God created, what he did was he took the formless waters and darkness, and he brought up the land and gave shape and gave light, right? And yet the deep was not an enemy that God had to conquer in order to prove that he was the greatest of the gods. That's not what's happening in Genesis 1. Notice the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You get the picture that everything's under control. Even when there was no land for any of us to live on, and it was all water, everything was under control. There's only one God in Genesis 1. Read Genesis 1. There's only one. And he is the God who speaks words like these in verses 9 to 10. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. I'm going to... And let the dry land appear. I'm going to set boundaries for the waters. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he named seas. And God saw that it was good. What could be more tame than the sea? Right, And it's, it's true. Genesis pictures God's work of creation as bringing shape and order where everything was formless and void. But there's no battle in Genesis 1. There's no mortal conflict between God and the cosmic forces of the sea. God simply speaks, brothers and sisters. He speaks, and it is so. And he saw that it was good. And so, in in many pagan myths, The sea is even personified. So you have the sea, but then it's personified. It's kind of made incarnate by the great sea monster that swims in it. And it's that sea monster that must be defeated, or at least must be held in check by the gods. So the gods have to keep that sea monster contained, because that's another one of the gods, but destructive. That's not the picture we see in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Why does he single out the great sea creatures? Because when Moses wrote Genesis 1, he was writing it to a people who were coming out of Egypt, going into a Canaanite territory where the surrounding pagan understanding of the world was that there were multiple gods and that the sea monsters were, were, were representations of those gods who were threatening creation. And so when Moses, when Moses writes the creation story under inspiration of God, he specifically mentions and singles out that the great sea creatures were, were brought into being by the simple spoken word of God. How sovereign is God? The psalmist writes in Psalm 104, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all! The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. All right, you've summed everything up. But then he says, there go the ships and Leviathan. he uh, He borrows language from pagan myth, which you formed to play in the sea. And so sometimes we already see, aren't we foolish for being filled with fear? When we see this picture of our God. When it comes to creation, there wasn't a hint of any conflict or battle between God and the sea. You look in vain in Genesis 1. And, and, and again, I want to point out to you that some people, they look at the, at the pagan myths of creation, and then they look at the Bibles story of creation, and they say, look, the Bible's just another myth, look, it's like they are, you've got a God bringing order out of the chaotic sea, but wait a minute, Genesis 1 is a polemic against all those pagan myths because there's no conflict there, there's a single sovereign God who speaks and it's so, and the sea is under his sovereign word and it was good. What we learn from the, the biblical account of creation is in your handout, there's only one true God who is sovereign over all he has made. And that includes you and me and every circumstance of our lives. And yet when it comes to our salvation from sin and death which is pictured in the Bible as a new creation, God does go to battle. Uh, The Bible pictures him often in Isaiah as, as as a soldier putting on armor and going out to battle with the enemy. And so in the story of our redemption, we see that there is an evil power that is arrayed against God and so also against us, brothers and sisters. So it's not like in the beginning, Genesis 1, all was, all was wonderful. Since the fall, there is an evil power has entered the world, right? And it's not that it's un- now outside of God's control. It's one of his creations that has rebelled, and we also being among his creation who have rebelled. And now there is an enemy that must be defeated. And so it's this power that God must finally destroy in order to finish his saving purposes for us. In order to finish his new creation, right? The first creation, now we have the new creation. And it's in the context of redemption then. It's in the context of this new creation that the Bible borrows from this mythic imagery. This pagan mythic imagery of the hostile sea arrayed against God and against his people. Moses Moses already described, you remember this in Exodus, Moses described when Israel crossed through the Red Sea, he described that as a new creation. They crossed on dry ground which God created dry ground in Genesis 1. The same, same words and language. Um, but then years later, after Moses had died, the biblical writers looked back on that redemptive event when God went out against Egypt and he destroyed the Egyptians and he saved his people and he brought them through what? Through the sea. They describe it using this mythological language of God doing battle with the sea. Psalm 74. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. So the sea pictures Egypt, right? When God divided the sea, when he destroyed the sea creatures, that was his destruction of Egypt, the enemy of God's people, and God's sovereignty over the sea. Habakkuk 3. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Remember, the sea is good. God created the sea, and what did he call it? It was very good. So guys, now when you go to the beach at the ocean one day and you look out at the ocean, you, don't, you can look and see something beautiful. And yet you can also see a, a, a physical picture of a mythic cosmic sea. Picturing something that is too big for you to face. Picturing something that in itself is enough to cause you to die of fear and fright. The biblical writers borrow this mythical language of their day without adopting the pagan worldview of their day. So remember, in the pagan myths, you've got all these different gods fighting. Who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the strongest? Who gets control? But even when the Bible adopts this language and imagery of these pagan myths, there's still only one true God and only one living God who has no rival. How often
1: do we live as if God has a rival? Psalm
0: 89 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies, and Rahab being a picture for Egypt and also for the sea monster. Rahab is a name in pagan myth for the sea monster. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So the God who goes forth to battle against the cosmic sea in redemption is still the same God who formed the sea in creation and who made Leviathan to play in it. In other words, the Bible borrows the language but ends up giving us a polemic against the pagan world Now we know that, that God's redemption of Abraham's fleshly seed was a picture and a shadow of his redemption of Abraham's spiritual seed. That's us that he would accomplish one day. And so the prophet Isaiah looks for this day when God is once again going to put a strap on his armor, his his helmet of salvation, his breastplate of righteousness. You thought, that's our armor, isn't it? No, Ephesians says that's the armor of the Lord. And that's the armor that Isaiah sees God strapping on, his helmet of salvation, his breastplate of righteousness. He takes up his mighty sword, bears his mighty arm, and he goes out now to battle, or at least Isaiah looks for him to do that, as he did one day with Israel and Egypt. He looks for him to do it again. Isaiah 51, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And so with that background in mind, what's the impression left on us now? When we see... These things with Daniel. As if we were in real life. Picture it. Close your eyes if you have to to see it. I saw in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. It is true that in ourselves, we must tremble with fear. No one is strong enough, big enough great enough or powerful enough, not to be terrified by this sight
1: with a foreboding of what's to come.
0: Certainly, the great sea being whipped up is only the sign of something to come. And yet, what strength do we have? Do we have to resist all the evil forces of this sea unleashed against us? And so we fortify ourselves with this reminder over and over and over again. Our God is sovereign over the sea. He is bigger than the sea. We fortify ourselves with the reminder that the God who goes to battle against that sea in redemption is the same God who formed the sea in creation and made Leviathan to play in it. We confess with the psalmist in Psalm 93, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high, he is mighty. Now then, we're fortified to see what Daniel saw next. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And I I believe if, if there was a passage in the Bible too scary to read to our children, this passage would be it. If we take it seriously, this is the stuff of nightmares. Just as there were four winds, from the four corners, now there's four beasts. And we know, maybe you remember in Daniel, that the number four symbolizes completeness. Four corners, four uh, compass points of the earth. And so, in other words, taken together, these. why are there four great beasts? Not primarily because we can equate them with four empires... That might be so, but that's not the main reason there's four beasts. The main reason is that these four beasts symbolize the full incarnation of all evil and all the evil power and might of the sea. So so all the sinister evil represented by the sea is now embodied, as it were, in these cosmic beasts that arise from where? from out of the sea. Where they come from tells you about what they are and what their purpose is. Whatever the interpretation of those things may be, we have to carefully see them in the light of the apocalyptic imagery. There's a sense in which the most basic meaning is not in saying this is that, but just taking it as it is. The point here then is the beastliness of these creatures as opposed to their humanity. Remember what the angel said about Nebuchadnezzar in the first half of Daniel? Where he said, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. So when you see a man acting like a beast, there's something wrong about that right the psalmist says i was brutish and ignorant i was like a beast toward you and so these four great beasts now they're obviously not like the lions that you go out tigers and bears and that kind of stuff or the birds or the squirrels or the rabbits these beasts are not dumb beasts and creatures of instinct that god made and called them good right good there are beasts that are good but these beasts you have a feeling are bad They're rational creatures, thinking creatures, and beasts are not rational creatures. So, what's going on here? These beasts actually think, they have intent, they have purpose, much like human beings. And yet, their purpose and intent is of such an evil and perverse and twisted nature that they're pictured not as human beings, but as. Beasts. In other words, why not picture them as human beings? Well, because their intent and their thinking is so twisted that they become beastly. And so we continue watching with Daniel, and what do we see? The first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Notice it is not a lion. It's interesting. The first thing we do is we say, okay, the first beast was a lion. What did Daniel say? It was like a lion. And the reason Daniel says that is he's never seen a creature like this before. He, he, he might compare it to a lion, but it was not a lion. Notice too, it's a mutant creature. It has eagle's wings on its back, which is not natural. There's no parallel for that anywhere in God's good creation. Leviticus 19 says, you shall, you shall not mix one cattle breed with another breed. But now we have an eagle mixed with a lion. We read in Genesis that God created every winged bird according to its kind. On the fifth day, God saw that it was good. Then on the sixth day, God created all the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. But what do we have here in Daniel? Are you seeing it? There's this mutant hybrid creature that's not a part of God's good created order. It's a distortion of it. And therefore, it is a threat and an enemy to it. Can you see how natural it is that this, a monstrosity like this, that it should arise from, in your handout,
1: out of the sea?
0: And are you seeing that there are evil, therefore, and there are wicked forces here against which we just have no power at all? against which, yes, we are completely helpless. And the point of realizing how helpless we are, the point of realizing how utterly defenseless we are, is actually to give us hope. Because to the extent that we put our trust and hope in ourselves or in any man, we will ultimately find ourselves driven to despair and hopelessness. We need to see the power of the enemy ranged against us so that we cannot be driven to, to despair but put our hope in the one who is sovereign over
1: all of these forces.
0: Is this the end of the world? Are we to be devoured by these four beasts that arise from out of the sea? Do we dare to keep watching with Daniel? Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Now again, we can immediately say, oh, there's Nebuchadnezzar who lost his mind and then he was returned to uh, his, his human self, right? And that may be involved here. But before we try interpreting it like that, we have to look at the apocalyptic. Because taken altogether, what's the point? The plucking off of the wings, being made to stand on two feet like a man, the mind of a man being given to the beast. Does this mean that this beast was just saved is this just has this beast just become a Christian? Is that the point here? This beast has been saved. Um I don't think so. That's not to say whether Nebuchadnezzar was saved or not. I'm not really speaking to that. But the point is not the salvation of the beast. All it represents is a sort of humanizing of the beast. The beast, notice, does not become human. It's not a human, still. It's still a beast. And where did the beast come from? It still comes out of the raging sea, which is the declared enemy of God. That's where it came from. Nothing changes that fact. The sea is not saved. The beast is not saved. But what we are seeing now is that this beast is not sovereign. It is not sovereign. It is not free to run riot according to its own will. There is one greater than the beast who, in your handout, restrains the beast. The beast is on a leash and even uses the beast for his own good and wise purposes. I don't understand that,
1: but it's wonderful to know.
0: It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that this ugly, evil, malevolent beast comes up out of the even more ugly, terrifying sea, should be wholly under the sovereign control of God. Notice the wonderful passives were plucked off, was lifted up, was made to stand, was given to it. The beast is not sovereign, God is. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. But for all that, we are still helpless we are powerless to stand before it. So just know this, if the beast should ever be left to itself for even a moment, it would mean the end of the world. It would mean the end of God's new creation. It would mean the end of the saving work he has begun in you and in me and in us. Therefore, there should be no doubt about the intentions of the beast. So we continue to watch and to see with Daniel, behold, another beast a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. So one of the reasons I don't put pictures up here this time is because I don't know what pictures to put up. This is not a bear. It's like a bear. We have to remember, too, that Daniel sees the second beast also coming out of the same sea. So whatever the one like a lion was, the one like a bear comes out of the same place, right? And what he sees this time, what we see is not a bear, but something like a bear. It's this monstrous creature raised up higher on one side than on the other, which if we say this is that may represent the Medo-Persian Empire. What we see, though, is this bloodthirsty creature that tears, that devours, now, did did the one like a lion not tear and devour? Certainly the lion teared and devoured. In a similar way, this second beast is not humanized. It's never made to stand on two feet like a man or given the mind of a man. Does that mean God is not restraining this beast? No. We just have different pictures. There's a sense in which What's said of one beast can be said of all the beasts. And there's also this unsettling reality, though, that with each successive beast, the language is more and more scary. And the beast is depicted as less and less restrained. See, we want to see the leash getting tighter. And yet what we find is that the leash keeps getting let out,
1: as it were. And so this second beast is actually told, arise,
0: devour much flesh. That's a gruesome picture. And on the one hand, we see that the beast is not sovereign. God is. Why? Because God told the beast, arise and do what I say. As one that arose out of the sea, we know the beast seeks to devour and destroy God's new creation, and yet it's only to the extent that God commands the beast and allows the beast that it can devour anything at all. On the one hand, there's mystery here. We say, how can God have anything to do with this beast and yet be the holy God that he is and this beast be the wicked perversion that it is? And so we struggle with this and somehow then we start to say "Well, then that, that this beast is some level independent of God. God only, God only just sits back hands off and allows and watches. But no, in Daniel what we see is a God who is sovereign over the beast and who actually says, arise, devour much flesh. And among the flesh that this beast devours is certainly the flesh of God's, of God's own called and chosen people. Here is a mystery, and yet it's in
1: this mystery that we find comfort and hope. We
0: come to read in verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. If we go to the this is that approach, we can eventually get to saying maybe this is Greece and the four heads represent the four um, division of the empire into four parts. But we're not talking about that this morning. There's a bigger mythic picture here. Because, by the way, remember, God could have said this is that. And sometimes he does. But why didn't he just do it that way in the first place? Because he wants us to see something deeper, bigger, and more powerful. So I'll ask you, is there anything more monstrous and
1: unnatural than something with more than one head? A beast with four heads.
0: And is there anything more terrifying that gets worse than to know that it is this four-winged, four-headed, Monster who has dominion over the earth.
1: And yet there's still this. Dominion
0: was, in your handout, given to it. Are, are, do you feel a bit t- um, torn inside at this point? On the one hand, the beast has dominion. On the other hand, dominion was given to it by the one we believe and know, is sovereign. If that's the third beast, what could the fourth beast be? Can we go anywhere from here? We read again, the floods have lifted up their voice, mightier than the floods is the Lord our God. And so are we fortified? Are we ready to see with Daniel this last and fourth beast? After this I saw... In the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. I mean, and we don't even know what the other beasts were. You could only tell us what they were like. And now this one is different from those. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So this fourth beast and final beast can't be, in your handout, compared. Can't even be compared with a lion or a bear or a leopard, or with any beast you've ever seen or heard of. Out of all the four beasts, it's the only beast that appears to have no restraints at all. We're not told it was given anything, though we know it was given. It only exists under the sovereign will of God. But we don't see the restraints this time. There's no, it was given, it was allowed, it was told. Instead, we see a beast Daniel describes as terrifying, dreadful. Exceedingly strong. And of course, this is why people don't want to read apocalyptic because they're terrified, right? But that's not the point to terrify. This is just the way things are. We like to maybe at some point stick our heads in the bucket and say, this is not the way things are. But what God is doing is just telling us this is the way things are. And once we can recognize the way things are, we can put our trust where it needs to be placed, and also be ready for any and all forms of suffering or trials that will come our way. Perhaps most terrifying of all, okay, we see these ten horns symbolizing a power that's apparently complete and absolute. Maybe most terrifying of all, in the end, we see this little horn growing up out of the head of this beast in the place of three original horns. And when the first beast was made to stand on two feet, remember, like a man, we saw a humanizing effect. This is not humanizing. When we see this, this fourth beast growing a horn in which, what do we see? Eyes like the eyes of a man. In other words, uh, they're not the eyes of a man. They're like it. There's a mouth speaking boastful and arrogant words against God, what we see here is not restraining influence, but apparently the unrestrained arrogance of man, satanically
1: inspired.
0: Now these beasts, including in a sense this final beast, have always been active in the world. The point is not to say, oh, we're living in the, the little horn, we're watching for the little horn. In fact, I believe as we preached that this was fulfilled, if you want to say this is that, the this is that part was fulfilled already. But the but the but the apocalyptic mythological imagery of this is continuously being fulfilled throughout history until Christ returns. This is to be our our way of understanding how the course of history is moving. And so taken together, these four beasts that arise out of the cosmic sea, they stand behind and they ultimately represent the whole course in your handout of human history until the end. In other words, the reason for this imagery is for us to, is is God as it were, opens the veil a little bit, he pulls back the curtains a little bit, and he says, there's a big cosmic battle going on. That is, if you, I'm just giving you a little glimpse, and it's going to be enough to terrify you and throw you on the ground in fear. Okay, but, but now, now I don't, you don't have to see that all the time. But you need to know that's the reality. And so, knowing that, look to me. Don't be surprised at suffering and trust in me, the God who is sovereign over the sea and over every monstrous mutant hybrid beast that could ever arise from out of the sea. He is
1: sovereign. The point of the apocalyptic
0: is to give us that glimpse. I know from our human vantage point. We don't see this all the time. And yet when we come to see reality as God has revealed it, in your handout, we won't be surprised when temptations or sufferings come. And who is Daniel writing to? He's writing to Jewish exiles who have in the years ahead are going to face some extreme suffering and persecution, of kinds that you really don't want to repeat. It would be be horrific times. The beast would attack. And what does God want his suffering
1: people to remember? He is sovereign.
0: Now, that was to the Jewish exiles. When you say that this is that part, I believe those four beasts have been fulfilled already in history and yet back of the this is that there's the there's the cosmic mythology the cosmic sea that still exists that's still active today the beasts that arise out of the sea there are always new incarnations of the sea in a new beast that would seek to destroy god's new creation always until christ returns knowing this then why would we be surprised No matter how bad things ever get for us and for God's people in this world. And Daniel was writing to Jewish exiles. Peter was writing to Christians who he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion. We won't ever be surprised. But here's the good news. Not being surprised, neither will we be feared with dread and fear. We won't be filled with dread and and fear. Instead, when we come to see reality like God reveals it, which is why we have to come back next week and the week after, <laughs> we're going to be fortified and we're going to be encouraged to trust. Just, just a,
1: simple, a simple, beautiful word. To trust wholly in our sovereign
0: God who is sovereign in ways that sometimes we're even uncomfortable with in our sinfulness. But at the end of the day, he is so sovereign, it is the ultimate final source of perfect peace and comfort. We'll be encouraged to trust wholly in him, to persevere to the end in faith because we know what that end is to which we persevere. The point of apocalyptic is not to scare us, but to comfort and strengthen. The point of apocalyptic is not to confuse us and not to say, I need a teacher to, 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 to um, decode everything that's in there in terms of history. The point of apocalyptic is to teach us wisdom. Remember that from Daniel, to teach us wisdom. If the beast should be left to himself, it would mean the end of the world. It would mean the end of God's new creation of the saving work he's begun in us as his people. There should be no doubt in your mind about the intentions of the beast or the satanic power behind the raging of the sea. We know that's there. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so in ourselves, yes, we do tremble with fear. These are forces against which we are utterly helpless. Let us us throw away all ideas of putting any confidence in our own flesh or in any man or in any human resource. And so as we do that, we're enabled to fortify ourselves with the reminder that our God is sovereign in your handout over the sea. We, we fortify ourselves with the reminder that the God who goes forth to battle against the cosmic sea and redemption is still in your handout the same God who formed the sea in creation and made Leviathan to play in it. Oh, what a glorious, glorious picture. Psalm 93. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. We remember the passage in Matthew where we read of our Lord Jesus In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And so when Jesus came with his first coming, he destroyed the sea monster. He walked on the sea. He demonstrated his sovereign control over it, but at his second coming, we will find that that, that though we face constant new reincarnations of the sea in constant new beastly forms, right? yet one day we'll be able to see this vision not just as a vision, but in reality. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, not the good sea that God created, and there, there will very likely be seas in the new heavens and the new earth. I believe there will be sea there. But we're not talking about the good sea. We're talking about the mythic cosmic sea.
1: It will be no more. No more. Dear Heavenly Father,
0: Lord, help us as you, as you have pulled back this curtain, this veil, for us to see just a vision just a, just a, just a little glimpse of of what is going on behind the scenes and has been ever since the fall and will be going on until Christ returns as we see this picture let us cast ourselves wholly and entirely in trust and rest upon you who are the only living sovereign unrivaled God and creator of all. And Lord, we, we praise you and thank you that we do not need to fear, that the point of this imagery is not to, to ultimately strike fear or terror in us, but to cause us to abound in hope, to cause us to live with the utmost serenity and peace looking always to the day, looking back to the day, really, when when our Lord Jesus walked on the sea and looking forward to the day when the sea will be no more, when all evil will be removed, when the enemy will be destroyed and defeated, and your redeemed people will sing for joy even as the israelites sang for joy when they reached the other side lord even today let us sing for joy because that victory has really has already been won at the cross and in the resurrection and in the ascension of jesus to sit enthroned at your right hand lord may we live today and tomorrow and every rest of the days of our lives in the light of your sovereignty. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.